Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. And on our way to our conversation, I want to encourage all of you to join me, the Daily Record and WEAA, on January the 30th in Annapolis for the 12th Annual Annapolis Summit. It's your opportunity to talk to Governor Hogan, Attorney General Frosch, Senate President Miller, and House Speaker Bush about the issues that affect all of our lives. You can get be there, stand in line, talk to the people, have a great breakfast at 7 a.m., begins at 8 o'clock uh, with the governor, and we conclude in the second hour with uh, Senator, uh, Senator Miller and uh, Speaker Bush. Uh, and you can be there to be part of that conversation January the 30th uh, at the Calvert House. Ticket information at thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit. That's thedailyrecord.com slash Annapolis dash summit or call Claire Sheehan at 443-524-8101. That's 443-524-8101 and be part of the action at the Annapolis Summit on January the 30th. Sponsored by Stevenson University, Baltimore Gas and Electric, the Maryland State Education Association, the Center for a Livable Future, Alexander and Cleaver, and the Maryland Department of Housing and Community Development. And one of those issues sure to come up is going to be the phosphorus management tool that we've been talking about many times here in this program uh, during the course of the conversations here. And we are joined now by Eric Schaffer. Is it Schaefer or Schaffer, by the way, Eric? It, it's Schaefer, Mark. All right, to make sure I had him. Sorry, apologize. Eric Schaefer, who is Executive Director of the Environmental Integrity Project and former Director of Enforcement for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and Kevin Anderson, President of the Maryland Grain Producers Association uh, and a grain farmer at Wimbley Farms in Princess Anne, Maryland. And Kevin, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Thank you, sir. Former president, I passed the gavel on the okay. first, first week of January. I passed the gavel on to another gentleman. All right. Well, congratulations. Get a little bit of a breather. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, and part of this was was the pro- program was because the letter to the editor in the Sun about about, about uh, pollution and poultry uh, that was written by Tom Pelton who is Director of Communications for the Environmental Integrity Project, which got us started, and then also um, reading Mr. Anderson's piece uh, on on that same thing in the Star Democrat on the shore. So we wanted to enter into this. So let's talk about it because it really are – this gets very confusing for most people to parse out because we're hearing so many different things uh, of, about what phosphorus does and why we couldn't get the PMT um, – well, people, some people think you couldn't get the PMT started two years ago when O'Malley said it was going to happen, then it was put off for a year. And the battle is still very, very much on with Governor-elect Hogan coming in, who has questions about the PMT. So let me talk about the different realities. Eric, let me begin with you, and let's talk to both of you about your reality, what this, what this phosphor management tool means. Eric? So, Mark, I, you know this well, but just maybe to define the problem for your uh, for your listeners, phosphorus is a big issue because it's a pollutant that, that gets into the bay and feeds the algae that uh, chokes chokes water intakes and ends up sucking the oxygen out of the water, which creates the kind of dead zones that uh, you you hear people talking about, people who care about the bay and like to fish and uh, run into these dead zones where there isn't any life. And part of the problem is we've got phosphorus sucking the oxygen out of the water. Now, more than half of that phosphorus that gets into the bay comes from agricultural operations. And bringing it home to Maryland, a a whole lot of that comes from poultry operations on the eastern shore. We're we're famous for those. And I eat a lot of chicken, so more power to them. But Purdue, Tyson's, and, and other big companies raise more than 300 million chickens a year on the eastern shore. 
and almost all of the manure from that uh, output is spread on farmland. The problem is that the land has too much phosphorus already, continuing to pile it on to soils that are already saturated in phosphorus means that you're going to get runoff into the bay. What the phosphorus management tool is about is about steering farms away from applying phosphorus to land that already has too much. And in those cases where adding more phosphorus will increase the risk of runoff and not do anything to promote promote crop growth. It's not needed for cropland. It's being put on land that already has way too much. And the phosphorus management tool is to steer farmers away from that kind of over-application and getting it off-land where it's just going to run into the watershed like it's done for so many years. So, so, so Kevin Anderson, when I read your piece, I, I want you to kind of talk a bit about this. I mean, because you, you, in, in your piece, you want, you're, you're challenging the very nature of the discussion. Am I, without saying, without, is that right? Well, Mark, I'm not. I'm not sure that I had a piece in the Star Democrat. So I. I no, you I'm, did not. I mean, you know, I, I apologize. It was Bill Edwards who had the piece. Yeah, Bill, yeah. I apologize. It was uh, Bill Edwards, right? Right. And and the reality. Let, let me take take you back a little bit. In the in the beginning of the phosphorus management tool, it was perceived to be a chicken industry problem. It focused on poultry manure. That was the perception, and that it was a poultry industry issue. As we learned more about the tool and how it was implemented um, back 12, 14 months ago, we found out that it impacted a lot of soils on the eastern shore, other than just soils that had been oversaturated with, and he says oversaturated and overapplied or, or terms they use today, but actually those manure that manure was applied to those acres of land by University of Maryland recommendations. So it, with the farmers that have manure that has been applied to acres have done it with the blessing of the University of Maryland. Right. Then we looked at that it went beyond those soils that there were actually soils that had never had manure applied to them that were going to be drastically affected by the PMT. From from fertilizer applications of a rock phosphate that my my great-grandfather could have applied, and definitely my grandfather applied when they were farming in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So then the ag community got alerted that this was not just, this did not just apply to poultry manure, it applied to a lot of other agriculture lands. And that's, that's when we got involved in saying, hey, look, we need to take a step back. A step back. And look at, and look at the whole picture. Um, you know, this, this whole idea of phosphorus running off land that, that this gentleman is talking about, it's a new phenomenon because we were always taught that phosphorus bonds to the soil and never moves. In the last five to eight years, there is science coming out that's telling us that that practice is not, that's not written in stone, and that in some situations, over application of phosphorus to land 
can lead to a soluble phosphorus runoff. And that is the new science that we're trying to deal with and implement into our new farming practice. So let me, let me just stop and get something clear. Because this is something that's come up on the program a lot and we hear in the arguments a lot. So and I, just for, for both of you, Eric and Kevin, uh, before we go to a quick break. So, mm-hmm. Eric, I think what, what Kevin's saying is through the science that we had years back said one thing. Now science is saying something different. Are, are we all in agreement about that part, Eric? Yeah, I, I don't think... I, I don't think I agree with that. Um, Why not? The, the, the science is showing that over-applying phosphorus to agricultural soil means that you're going to get that excess phosphorus is going to run off into waterways. That's not something that just got discovered in the last five to eight years. I'm, I'm sorry. I just have to call Kevin on that. That's been known for a much longer time. The phosphorus management tool itself comes out of the University of Maryland, and it pinpoints soil that is already saturated with phosphorus and, and tries to keep farmers from stacking more phosphorus on top of that. It, it seems like a common-sense solution. It's not something that would keep you from applying phosphorus to land that needed it and to soils that didn't already have too much. Well, I, I, we have to take a very quick break here. We're going to come right back to Kevin Anderson with a question about that. And the question is, is the debate about whether or not the phosphorus is, is that is from 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 decades and decades of of working the land um, and then pouring more on top is the problem going to the bays is is that the problem or not the problem from, from your perspective Kevin or is it the problem of the cost to the business of farming and how those two intersect for you and then come back to that and turn to Eric so join us here four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight we'll be right back to continue this discussion which will be a major discussion coming up in the new administration stay with us. Welcome back to the Mark Steiner Show on Sound Bites here on WEAA 88.9 FM. Um, the, the, your source, your jazz, and, and the voice of the community, and also here at WSDL on the Eastern Shore as we talk with Eric Schaefer, Executive Director of the Environmental Integrity Project uh, and former Director of the Civil, Civil Enforcement for the EPA, and Kevin Anderson, former President of the Maryland Grain Producers Association uh, and, and Grain, and, and a farmer who owns Wimbley Farms, excuse me, in Princess Anne County. Um, so, Kevin, let me come back to you, and, and folks, you can join us here at 410 but what I asked earlier, so this is this is what I, this is what I'm trying to figure out about, about the arguments going back and forth. Uh, what I said earlier is, is that, I mean, is there an is there is there still an argument about whether or not there is a lot of phosphorus in our soil just because of years of farming and it does run into the bay and it does cause pollution um, and more phosphorus just exacerbates that. But is 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 that in question or is the question really about how you handle it because of the cost to the business of farming? Well, let me go back to one thing Eric said earlier about this isn't new. Um, Since I started farming in 1987, I've had a nutrient management plan every year. My nutrient management plans that are um, 
done by a consultant by the rules and regulations of the University of Maryland never started addressing phosphorus until uh, like 2004 in the adoption of the phosphorus site index, which is the tool that we are using today. It was done by Dr. Cole. So that was the first time that we've ever addressed um, phosphorus enrichment in soil, which was in the in 10 years. So um, that's when phosphorus, that's when we started looking at phosphorus on in Maryland soils was when Dr. Cole implemented his phosphorus site index. Um, is there an argument about over phosphorus enrichment in soils? To me, to me, Mark, there there are soils that need attention. There are areas in agriculture that need to be addressed. Um, the practices that my my grandfather used when he was farming in the 50s, 60s, and 70s have elevated these phosphorus levels in these soils to um, right around the farmstead. I mean, I have I have fields that have if you get 200 yards from an old dairy barn or an old chicken house, those soils are over-enriched because they practice something called manure disposal then. And as soon as they could get away from the livestock area, they disposed of the manure, drove back in the shed to get another load, drove out again, and as quick as they could get that unloaded, they came back for another load. And that was how it was done back then. And the scientists tell me in these areas of these fields where that was manure disposal was practiced, it could take 50 years to get that soil down to um, a level that is not excessive. But in the same field, 200 yards away, I have a soil that needs to have, may need phosphorus applied to it for optimum plant growth. So, so it's kind of hard to it's 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 going to be difficult for us to manage these areas, and and yes, we do have areas that need to be addressed. Do you blanket the whole eastern shore and say the whole the whole Somerset County or the whole lower shore where poultry is is a condemned area and doesn't need any more phosphorus? That that science isn't here. So, uh, Eric, is that science here? What do you? What, yeah, how's your response well, of course. I mean, you know, that, that's just not what the phosphorus management tool does at all. It doesn't condemn the entire county or prohibit application of phosphorus on any soils that aren't already super saturated with phosphorus. That's the target of the phosphorus management tool. So, it's it's just pretty hard to debate when uh, when the phosphorus management tool is described as doing something that it just flatly doesn't do. I also, I'm just not comfortable blaming Kevin's grandfather for the problem. I don't really see where that gets us. Back in the 50s and 60s, we weren't raising 300 million chickens on the eastern shore. We weren't creating mountains of poultry litter, which is what we do today. That, that is our problem today. That is not a legacy from the 50s. And, and maybe this will bring it a little closer to home for your, for your listeners, but you had a bad chromium problem in Baltimore Harbor, lots and lots of chromium stacking up in the sediment from years and years of use by a, a big processing plant in the city. And nobody would, would seriously try to argue, and they didn't argue back then, 
well, this is the way Grandpa did it. You know, we just put chromium in the sediment, and it's going to take a long time to, to get it out. And somehow that's supposed to justify continuing to add chromium to the sediment just because, you know, that's the way it was done back then. I mean, that, that argument I don't think would make sense to people. The very fact that we have that legacy, that history of applying phosphorus to these soils until there's too much in it, that tells you it's urgent to stop doing that over-application now. That's not an argument for taking a whole lot longer to fix the problem. So uh, maybe it's time for just just for one moment to step back for a second. And I think this, this, because I don't think I'd be wrong in saying that a lot of people listening to this going, okay, we've heard you talk about this a lot over the last period of time, the PMT, the phosphorus management tool, and you just said, Eric, this is not what the tool does in response to what Kevin was saying. Let me start with you, Eric, and then go to Kevin. Just what is the what is this tool? What will it do? How does it get implemented? Maryland has, the Agriculture Department and University of Maryland have, through, through a uh, soil test procedure, they will identify the soils that are hot with phosphorus, the so-called hot spots, where it's not just uh, that the soil has too much, it's that the soil has way too much. So that's kind of the main, you know, the first decision you have to make. It's, it's a, something called a fertility index value. If you hit a certain level, it means that soil is super saturated. You also look in through the management tool at whether the soil is sloped, whether it's near a creek where the phosphorus can be carried off easily. And the idea behind the tool is to steer people away from putting more phosphorus on top of those hot spots. And that's what it does. So how and Kevin, come back and talk a bit about if that is that your perception what the tool is and and and, and describe why that for you and some of the people you represent or represented is onerous. Well, it's it, it doesn't reparate super saturated. And when we were working with Dr. Cole and, and Josh McGrath about setting our fertility index numbers, we were talking about increasing them and for his standards. And we asked him what the environmentally different environmental difference or effect was for moving the fertility index from 150 to 300, which would make it easier for us to, to navigate within the rules. And both of them said that environmentally it was insignificant to move the number from 150 to 300, that it wouldn't get in, uh, environmentally significant until we got up over 500. So, so you know, we're dealing with a number here that is... Uh, that's, that's not set in stone. When we send soil test away, Mark, the fertility index that he's talking about is at 150. If I send the same soil test off to three different labs, that same soil test can vary 100 points between each individual soil lab. So the variability of where we're getting and what we're getting done is, is a lot greater than the index they want to hold us to. So, uh, I, I, go ahead, Eric. I heard you want to jump in. Let's, let's you kind of both of you conclude this out, Eric. Oh, you know, I just I've never heard. Uh, it's the first time I've heard anybody argue that uh, something like five hundred as a fertility index value, three times more than more than three times what they're 
targeting in the phosphorus management tool would be appropriate. Uh, again, the phosphorus management tool was developed by the University of Maryland, so um, it, you know it, com- it comes from it comes from the same source. And uh, you know, just just so people understand, if you have fertility index value of a hundred or more, in general, you do not need phosphorus. You do not need to add any phosphorus to that soil to get the crop growth that you want. I'm, You've I'm already got enough. Not, I'm glad. So we're now we're now talking about five, five times the level, and that you know I just I just don't understand that. Eric, I'm I'm glad you're not farming for a living because there's something called unavailable phosphorus that is unavailable to the plant that is in the soil that the plant can't take up. And we can plant a crop in a soil that the FIV is at over 150, but the plant will struggle and suffer with phosphorus deficiency. Just because the phosphorus is in the soil doesn't mean it's plant available and will help grow a crop. So I'm using the values that the Maryland Department of Agriculture publishes and that's right. They, and, you know, and they they generally say over a hundred doesn't get you anything more. And you're but, you're now talking about five times the amount. I I don't know how much further we'll get with this kind of gap uh, in terms of our our understanding of the facts. Um, I just you know that's why we're I, having I, a phosphorus symposium at the end of the month to hopefully yeah. bring my misconceptions and your misconceptions together. To try to get that's well, that's one thing we're having at the end of the month that that who's I we hope will be helpful to this issue. Who is we? Uh, the Maryland grain producers, um, in, and NDA, and the there is it's going on. I don't have the particulars right in here in front of me, but it's going on at um, at Y Mills at the um, Chesapeake. Yep. Yep. College on Jan, I believe it's January thirty first, maybe. That's a Saturday. So, uh, so Eric, are you a part of that 30th. as well? The thirtieth, and we're bringing in researchers from across the country to try to help the ag community and the environmental community Got- understand the true facts. So, now, Eric, are you part of that? Is your group part of that? Uh, no. Then why is we're that? Not. I don't know. The Bay you'd have Foundation to ask, you'd have is, to ask is, Kevin. Help, is helping us with the base so, Foundation is part of it. So I, I think that, you know, I think clearly in the short time we have here, this is, I mean, there are a lot of issues here that, that I think are very critical that, are gonna, that we're going to see kind of really um, rising up over the next month and a half, two months um, in Maryland around this. And, I, and I, I, um, um, I think there's a lot more to be said. And so I, I'd like to really... Invite the both of you back again um, for a lo- longer segment, but really very much focused on on where we are because I think that that, that the listeners are, for the throughout the state of Maryland are hearing this really need to understand what's going to happen um, with this phosphorus management tool over the next two months as soon as Governor Hogan becomes the governor of the state of Maryland. Um, well, evidently, Mark, we're not getting a free pass with Governor Hogan. Um, you know, some people had the perception that we were going to get a free pass. Evidently, that's not what I understand. He's we're not going to get a free pass on the phosphorus management tool. Um, so, and it's my goal not to have a phosphorus management tool that is like the speed limit on the beltway around Baltimore. I would hope to have a phosphorus management tool 
that has buy-in from the ag community as well as the environmental community and has a much more ado- higher adoption rate so, than an X's and O's piece of paper. Before That's we go, goal. Eric, let me give you a final thought since you haven't been in here for a minute, and then we have to take a break. I, I, I appreciate um, this debate, and, and uh, really thank you for inviting me and enjoyed hearing Kevin's point of view. I think it's, it's great there part of the debate, and obviously farmers are a critical part. I'd, I'd like to see a phosphorus management tool that works, that actually does something about runoff in the bay. So, you know, that's our goal, and, and let's see where the governor goes. Well, gentlemen, we will look forward to having the two of you back and see what happens uh, and, and, and really get into the, deeply into this. Um, and Eric Schaefer, who's Executive Director of Environmental Integrity Project, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate your taking the time with us. Looking forward to having you on again. And Kevin Anderson, who runs the Wembley Farms in Princess Anne County, good to have you with us as well. Yep. I'll send you the information on that phosphorus symposium. Please do. I'll email it to you. That'd be great, and I'll share it. Thank you so much. Uh, Eric and Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Mark. We're going to take a very brief break, come back with Dr. Wayne Roberts uh, with a really interesting piece that he put together. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner. Welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites. We're about to talk to Dr. Wayne Roberts, one of the one of the North America's leading food analysts, uh, author of Food for City Building, former manager of the Toronto Food Policy Council, and one of the people who inspired Baltimore's Food Policy Council, and a regular com- a co- <laughs> columnist for Rabble. Uh, and Wayne Roberts, welcome. Good to have you with us. Hi. Thank you, Mark. So uh, this may be the first of many conversations with you because I really did enjoy what you wrote, and there's not enough time to go through it all, but uh, let me take one step first. Explain sure. to our listeners, since we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about this in the coming year from different groups around the state of Maryland, what is a food policy council? Well, um, it usually starts in a city uh, most of the time or in a county uh, region, and what it tries to do is to overcome the biggest problem in the f- in the food scene, which is that everyone has their little piece of specialty, whether it's phosphorus or something else, that the whole world revive, revolves around, and no one is trying to put all the pieces together. So if you look at a city like Baltimore and say, how can we think about food not just to eat, but also how to grow, you know, beautify the city with community gardens? And not only that, but how to improve equity uh, in, in the city so that people on low income have got access to, to food. And then not only that, but how can we improve air quality by transporting food a lot less? So no one ever is asking these questions. How do we get food to solve multiple purposes? And what a Food Policy Council does is a city is really inviting a group of citizens to say, uh, kick our butt a bit and get us to think in a broader way. And so when I started in this field, which was in um, uh, 2000, there were three food policy councils in the entire world, and there's now well over 200, wow. one of which is in Baltimore, and it's spread to uh, Europe, and people are really catching on to it, and I think especially um, young people are are uh, jumping on this uh, thing like uh, crazy, because there's a huge enthusiasm, I believe, for the positive energy that comes out of it. it. It's instead of a whole bunch of us just sort of saying, oh, God, we're drowning in food problems, you can actually work at a level of government that's small enough that you can actually start to see improvements, you know, every day. 
No, that that's exciting. I know there, there there's a really active one in Baltimore City. There's active ones in Prince George's County, uh, right outside of Washington, and then Montgomery County. Another another counties are establishing these, um, and I think they're they're very exciting um, piece. And so we'll be talking great to more of that and. And look forward to having you back on when we do that okay, with other people. Yeah, and sort of the beginning of wisdom on this, um, which I think is true for the New Year's, uh, New Year's themes that I tried to deal with, is that food is not just something in its own right, but it is a lever to help us move other agendas that people have not thought of. And that's sort of what I'm trying to track over the years, is as people get a better sense of food, they're getting, saying, wow, it can affect, you know, if we're talking about the wages of food workers in the fast food industry, it can affect the whole layout of poverty in, in North America. And so that's the really dynamic uh, pulse that's behind uh, f- food organizing that's going on in these years, I believe. Because so, much, so, so many of the people who live, so many of the working people who live mired in poverty work in the food industry. That's exactly right. And, and it's a bit like you say, well, who are the most underpaid Workers in North America, well, they'd be child care workers and food workers, like the people who are doing the most important work in the country, right? So um, that that's a, a problem that got started. Actually, I put the, the blame on, for this on the British uh, because they, <laughs> uh, they decided that they were going to industrialize by having cheap factory workers who, could, who they would keep alive with cheap food from America and Canada, which was what all the Erie Canals and all those things were all about is getting cheap grain to the English uh, working people in factories. And huh. so we've got stuck ever since then as where cheap food is sort of the social policy of most in, uh, industrially advanced countries. And, um, but it's causing so much problems, including the fact that food is a major cause of poverty around the world. Because uh, you, whether you're a farmer or, or a food worker in a city, you're all underpaid. So that's the jackpot that we've got ourselves into by just looking at food through one sort of lens instead of asking, well, how can we use food to improve the whole situation? And that's also really fascinating. I will do maybe more of the time, the historical analysis about tying our kind of growing industrialized food farming for cheap farming to the Industrial Revolution of Europe the, uh, of feeding that. I mean, I think that's that's something we don't talk about very much. No, I know. It's sort of like usually when you think of, well, what's the trajectory of the United States after the American Revolution for independence was that you became more independent. But the reality is that the West was uh, unfolded and developed as an agricultural area to satisfy the, the needs of industrial Britain. So I said, it said, I, it got me thinking. This, this, is, we, I won't go there now, but I mean, it's just like that. You can see that the whole growth of Western capitalism had to do with not just slavery, but it had to do with food production. The two are very closely linked. <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> yeah, slavery is the way to drive the uh, low cost, right? So, and it provided cotton, uh, tobacco, which are agricultural products. Uh, so, and I think this is the, like one of the themes I identify is that for the. First time in the world, in 2007, the majority of people in the world lived in cities. And this year is the first year that the majority of farmland is within 20 miles of cities. So uh, we are seeing the urbanization of agriculture. And as that happens, you can no longer say, well, we're going to be putting the food production out there where land is relatively cheap and 
people can live a cheap life because they're isolated and removed. On the contrary, now food production as well as distribution and processing is going to be happening in cities. So there's got to be a price revolution. So let me talk a bit about this revolution before we run out of time on today's program. And and come to the piece that you wrote for Rebel um, uh, on the five global food trends of 2015. And I, I at first read it when oh God, this guy's a little overly optimistic. But, <laughs> but, well, <laughs> let, let, let's look at them. So you're saying there are these five major trends, uh, mega trends, and you start with the the militant protests of food workers and the organizing of food workers throughout mm-hmm. this country and the South. This country in the U.S. and 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 throughout the global South. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, uh, first about uh, the. Uh, illness I have, which is uh, optimism. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one to have, though. It's all right. Yeah. I mean, it comes from food because food actually is a way to train your mind to, when you see a problem to think opportunity and never just to think problem. And because uh, food comes with a lot of empowerment, either me as a person, I can buy fair trade coffee, as can you, and it's increasingly becoming possible in, in cities across North America and Europe. Uh, and we can do something about it. There's 25 million people uh, work are, whose livelihood depends on coffee and cacao, and their wages are, uh, have been going up since the fair trade movement has taken off. So you can see opportunity with very simple actions as opposed to very complex things that get ground down in legislative stuff, and an individual can actually do something positive. And so that is a trend that's uh, happening. Food workers, especially in the U.S., are uh, hot to trot. But around the world, peasants are saying, uh, we've had enough. And there's, you know, the most dramatic sign of that is that a group called Via Campesina, the Peasants' Way, um, has in a very short period of time from the late 1990s until today, is now a fixture at meetings of the United Nations. Like, they are considered to be a group. You've got to invite them in the same way you invite Bolivia. So, um, and and their major uh, point is, as a result of global free trade, they're uh, being driven into impoverishment. And um, so that rebellion is going on. It's probably even more dramatic uh, than of people on low income in the fast food industry in the United States. So and the other trend, uh, there's some other trends here that I think are really fascinating. One is, and I, you can feel it everywhere you go, which is this increased empathy for farm animals. But how deep is that and how wide is it, do you think? Well, you know, uh, partly it depends a bit on age. <laughs> so obviously there's a huge demographic of young uh, women, particularly going through a sensitive period in their life, usually in their teens, uh, develop a huge empathy for animals. But generally speaking, you know, if you remember the great uh, Hollywood film on uh, Food, Inc., when people see the way animals are treated, there's something in your gut just go, Ugh, you know, and... Yeah. Um, so there's an automatic instinct about that, and it's a typical issue where the politicians haven't known how to grab the issue. And then California basically said, you want to sell your eggs or chickens uh, or veal in this state, then you've got to follow up pretty high standards of animal welfare. No cruelty, and also you have to respect the animalness of the animals. Like you can't just, you know, most animals live in groups, and you can't just keep them in a sty all by themselves all day. And so um, it's a pretty high standard that they've set. And one after another, the big corporations have said, hallelujah, I've seen the light, and I want to uh, sell my goods to California, right? And so 
um, you know, big players like uh, like uh, Nestle, Starbucks, and others are falling into line on this. So all of a sudden, all these things, nobody says you have any power, and then all of a sudden one state moves, and, and you know, six or seven mega corporations immediately say that they're going to f- follow through. So this is the power that, this is what behind my uh, optimism. So there's a lot here. I mean, I think that that, and, and we we only have a few minutes left here in the segment, unfortunately. So I, I do look forward to hearing do this in greater depth with you because I think the the the, the stuff you're writing about the, the research into the the medical side of it and probiotics and what's in our food and and the work you're doing about hunger um, and how you see young people changing this and political organizing. So it just very quickly, if you can round that out for us in the next couple of minutes, that would be great. If I, if I could line that up? Yeah. Okay, well, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to take you up on the invite to come back and yes. talk about the uh, the probiotics thing, because if you think about mindsets, like I'm uh, 70, actually, and um, so I grew up as uh, you know at the tail end of the war, and that whole wartime experience has been central to my upbringing, and I think a lot of people who are in uh, positions of power today, and we all grew up with antibiotics as one of the great inventions in human history. And the whole concept of it is anti-life. That's the translation of an antibiotic, is that it kills everything. And then all of a sudden we now are living in the midst of the probiotic revolution, which is instead of conquering the forces of evil, we will strengthen the forces of good. A totally different metaphor and understanding of the human condition and of our place in the world. And... uh, it's leading to all sorts of people are wondering all these things they've never heard of before. Kombucha tea and, <laughs> and kefir instead of yogurt and uh, all of this kind of stuff. Of People are looking for enzyme-rich foods and probiotic-rich uh, foods. And they see the source of life and health is within their stomach. It's not just a tube that you jam your potatoes <laughs> down into, right? So, I'm so, uh, wait, 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 sorry, we do have to take this break here, but okay. I, I, I am going to invite you back very soon. I to talk to you. Thank yeah, you very great. much for giving me this much time. Uh, Dr. Wayne, no, it's not enough time. Dr. Wayne Roberts, one of the Americas, one of our North America's leading city food analysts and author of uh, Food for City Building, and we'll be linking to his article in Rabble that we've been talking about, Five Global Food Trends for 2015. Look forward to getting you back here on the Steiner Show on Soundbites very soon. Okay, thank you, Mark. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineers are Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Pop Radio is Christopher Rank. Our intern and day in history research producer is Sianna Greaves. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. To podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for Public Radio, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and your source for cool jazz and more, and WSDL 90.7 FM, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.